Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So, as seems to be a pattern with my introductions, I'm going to have to bite my tongue and resist the urge to give extended commentary on contemporary events. I'm recording this a day, a day and a half after President Trump has just been impeached by the House, and there's a lot I could think to say on that. But at least for now, I'm going to resist the urge. And the reason for doing that is I think if I go into my personal views on every news story as they come up, even with the news being as um, dramatic and consequential as it is right now, then I think the podcast would probably morph into more of a current events podcast, which isn't my vision for it, and I think isn't the best product that I can be putting out. There's a lot of shows giving you minute-by-minute um, minute reactions to the news cycle. Some of them are great, some of them are, you know, not so great. But I don't think realistically I'm going to put out anything that rivals them. So, other than saying that I support impeachment, I'm unsure if this is strategically the right thing or do, to do at this point or not. But I think the time for those questions has passed, and I think for the next month, two months, however long this goes on for, we should be focused on just making the case as clearly and accessibly as we can. Other than to say that, I won't belabor my own views on this. I think between now and the trial, I'll try and do an impeachment episode and find a good expert to have on who can maybe talk to us about the history and the constitutionality there. So I do want to get that on record at some point. But more generally, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, like, what's the value added of this podcast? You know, why would you listen to this podcast as opposed to, like, the billion other podcasts that are out there, or even the million other podcasts that are out there on politics? And the answer isn't that this podcast is unrelated to current events. I was thinking about the almost 100 episodes we've done now, and they are all, you know, often quite implicitly, but there is a focus in these podcasts on the current age we're living in politically, and on the sorts of questions that living through this sort of quite troubling political realignment is forcing us to ask ourselves and ask of our political systems. So it's it's not that the podcast is sort of unrelated to the drama of the news cycle. It's more like what we're bringing isn't minute-by-minute reactions or commentary. What I'm trying to deliver to you with this is to present you with frameworks of analysis, with theories, with political ideologies, with um, historical narratives that give you mechanisms for trying to make sense of what can often seem to be a bewildering political present. Now, I've brought you a range of them. I haven't necessarily endorsed a particular one, but the political world around us can be quite hard to make sense of sometimes, right? And what I'm trying to bring you with this show is ways, plural, ways of making sense of it, from theory, from history, from philosophy. And I think at its better moments, 
we have done episodes where people have wrote me and said, you know, I sort of feel like I see this differently now. And that's ultimately how I see the relationship of and the value that this podcast adds to our current turbulent and, like I say, often quite bewildering news cycle. And I say that as a preamble because today's episode is going to be an episode about history, about modern American history. And I think a big part of why people find our current political moment sometimes to be very counterintuitive, to be quite alien, and to be quite shocking, is they often come to it with only a one-dimensional or a two-dimensional view as to how we got here. And of course, history is about looking at the different narratives, the different causes, again plural, of how we got here. It's also about, and this is what I go into this conversation a lot, about how we think about how we got here, about how the various narratives and ideological framings that we have in the present, how those mesh, how they fit with or don't fit with, how they contradict sometimes with the sorts of narratives that mature history produces. And I think you'll see that sort of um, focus, that sort of way of thinking about it in the questions that I ask in this interview, which is about the social and political history of crack cocaine in America. My guest today is David Farber. He's the Roy A. Roberts Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Kansas, and he's the author of numerous books, including Everybody Ought to Be Rich, The Rise and Fall of Modern American Conservatism, Taken Hostage, The Age of Global Dreams, Chicago 68, and most recently, and the book we'll be talking about today, Crack, Rock Cocaine, Street Capitalism, and the Decade of Greed. So I learned a lot from this book and from talking to Professor Farber about this history and about many aspects of it that I didn't know about. I will say as a quick note that my questions here focus much more on the political aspects of this history and how this history served to build our present day politics. There's a lot else in the book which we didn't get a chance to touch on about some of the social aspects of cocaine distribution or crack cocaine distribution within this period. So if you are interested in this conversation, there's a lot more we didn't get to that um, I would recommend you go check out. One super quick note is we end the conversation by discussing the current 2020 Democratic primary, and we briefly reference Kamala Harris, again with reference to mass incarceration and so on. We recorded this episode, I think, just before she dropped out, so we didn't know that that one was coming, obviously, um, but it doesn't hugely impact the conversation. And then we, of- we also talk about Joe Biden a bit, um, and obviously he's still in the race and arguably still frontrunner. So anyway, that's just a quick note. And yeah, that's, I think, about all I've got for my introduction. Let's get straight to it. I found this to be a fascinating book and a fascinating conversation, both for understanding this history for its own sake as just a very interesting social history, but also understanding how that history 
help to build and form our political present, and how our current political narratives mesh or don't mesh with the narratives of that history. So, with that as preamble, I hope you get as much out of this as I did. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Professor David Farber. Yeah, so I'm joined today by Professor David Farber. Professor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Good to be with you, Toby. So I always, I've, I've, I've settled into asking the question in the most dumb, cliche, trite way, but how do you introduce yourself if you're at a party and someone says uh, the sort of dreaded R, so what do you do? What's your, what's your go-to for that? I guess I start by saying, hey, I'm David, <laughs> and... I teach at the University of Kansas, and I write books about politics and culture in a historical framework. So you've done quite a few on politics, and you've written on American conservatism, right? I have. And so how did you go from that to writing a book about the crack epidemic? I can talk today about the crack epidemic. So two big questions kind of drew me to thinking about crack cocaine and the ways at which it percolated through American society. I've always been interested in the history of capitalism. So I've written a couple books about sort of the winners of capitalism. I wrote about the origins of General Motors, the development of the DuPont Corporation, you know, what it looks like from the top. And I've also always been very interested in social change movements and normative politics. I worked in Washington, D.C. briefly before I became an academic. And so I like to bang those two things into each other. How do politics and policy interrupt, extend, affect the capitalist system, particularly in the United States. Hmm. Crack cocaine was a way to look at the story of markets developing from below instead of from above hmm. and launch a very punitive approach aimed at the entrepreneurs of this very dangerous but alluring drug, crack cocaine. We're skipping a little bit forward in the argument to the middle of the book, but do you, you could see it both as an interesting perspective on capitalism, both from a structural and a cultural point of view, right? From a structural point of view, obviously, you have customers and sellers and so on, and like you say, a market created. But one of the other things the book explores is the culture in the same way as we glorify great industrialists. There became a kind of glorification of the of the drug kingpin or the mob boss or however you want to, to, to call that figure, right? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things fascinating, at least in the United States and maybe Margaret Thatcher forward Great Britain, is the ways in which the job creator, the entrepreneur, the the magician of creative destruction has become a kind of iconic figure Mm. in the West. And I was really curious, what's it look like when you're the magician of creative destruction coming out of the inner cities? Mm -hmm. So I really look carefully at some of the crack crack kingpins in Chicago, New York City, Washington, D.C., not just to see how they created their businesses, though I'm very interested in that, but also how they were perceived within the worlds in which they operated. Mm. And there was a lot of vision within those worlds, but there was also glorification. Mm. 
That's so interesting, and we'll come back to that. I do have a, a perhaps slightly impolite question. Um, is how do you think about yourself... Oh, so I'll, I'll put it on the record before um, I ask the question that I really liked the book. I found it both really informative and really readable. Um, so just so I'm not biased as to your answer, but how do you think about yourself politically? Do you self-define as liberal or conservative or, like, what's your overall... People tend to have an overall um, perspective on their relation to capitalism in particular. Yeah, so I, I don't have a very simple and pithy way to put it. I believe in market economies. I think that they're the best way to adjudicate value in most situations, but I'm also a political progressive in most regards. So in the United States, I'm probably fitting well within the label of a liberal in the United States of the word. But unlike a contemporary, well, liberalism that is increasingly, um, comfortable defining itself against capitalism, you wouldn't be part that part of the liberal movement in America. I'm just trying to get a handle on it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So and I don't think of myself as an anti-capitalist leftist. In my opinion, liberals are a part of the left, but they are not the same as uh, socialists. Right, you can be a liberal capitalist, but you're not a DSM, Bernie Sanders type. That's probably true enough. I remember Todd Gitlin, who was a, a very famous 60s radical, has heard me give a long talk about the 1960s in America, and he was a bit appalled, and he said, you're some sort of passionate middle-of-the-road type. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's fair enough. Well, I mean, just for my own biases, I'm definitely on the left, but I will say one thing, which I think is there is um, an unfair correlation of... Um, uh, centrism, if you want to call it that, although it's a terrible word, with lack of passion or lack of beliefs or something like that. Like, you can you can have a very passionate, very committed, third-way type approach, just for what it's worth. Much obliged, thank you. <laughs> um, so then, but then, you, you're a liberal, but you're also um, someone who believes in market systems. How did you find writing this book then, which is almost like, you could say, the, the worst aspects or the dark side of market <laughs> systems, right? Did it, did, it, did it shake your convictions at all? Did it add to them? Did it change your perspective? Well, I'm, I'm no 19th century liberal. So <laughs> I, I'm not a believer in predatory capitalism. Right. And I do believe somewhere at the core of capitalism is predation. Hmm. So I very much do believe that there's a role for governments and society and culture to balance the most, well, let's be blunt, evil aspects of capitalism with some sort of set of virtues and values that can be used to maintain a civil society mm. in a way that's equitable. So again, in my mind, that makes me a passionate middleman. Mm. doesn't make me an apologist for capitalism. No, I wasn't trying to. I was just wondering how you saw that through this lens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's start at the start of the book then. Um, let me just pull out a quick quote I had penned. So just from the start of chapter one, you write, quote, Not that long ago, cocaine was just another thing a person could buy. It was legal in the United States and pretty much everywhere else. End quote. And you go on to describe how this was something that was in a range of products anywhere from, like, cough syrup on up. So could you talk a bit about that world? Because that sounds so surreal and either utopian or dystopian, <laughs> depending on your perspective. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the important things. We're talking about capitalism a lot in this conversation. And there was essentially an unregulated marketplace in the United States, oh, until the early 20th century. I mean, it's useful to remember that almost everything was legal. Portions were legal. All kinds of narcotics were legal. All sorts of behaviors in terms of consumer fraud were legal. Hmm. All sorts of abilities to pass oneself off as a professional, as a, a fraudster, a huckster, hmm. were essentially legal behaviors. So capitalism went through a series of massive reforms in what we in the U.S. call the progressive era, hmm. and an attempt to kind of constrain, again, the most dangerous, predatory and ill-advised aspects of the marketplace. You can make a pretty good case that there was a, a kind of fierce backlash in early 20th century America against that unlicensed, unrestrained marketplace. You know, mm. don't forget in the U.S., alcohol became illegal as a beverage in 1920. Mm. So it wasn't just heroin or cocaine. It was even alcoholic beverages that were banned from the marketplace. So the United States has been working its way through the limits of the capitalist marketplace for a very long time. And cocaine, only really by around 1920, was illegal in the U.S. Was it commonly used at that time of criminalization, or was it like, when did it become something that was mainly associated, um, and I say associated um, carefully, with um, black Americans, or was this a bit like um, middle-class housewives were um, assigned heroin in these days to sort of calm <laughs> the nerves? Um, when did it go from that sort of drug to a drug that was associated with, again, I'll put scare quotes around the word, a perceived underclass? Yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating story. And certainly in the late 19th century, cocaine in particular, but heroin as well, were widely used and distributed. Heroin in particular was a middle-class drug, for example, mainly targeted white women to help them with, as you say, their nerves and depression and issues related to pregnancy. Cocaine was used by all kinds of folks, mm -hmm. everything from curing the little one's teething problems to the need for a pick-me-up for a doctor working late nights. It, it really became only in the late 19th and early 20th century that people began to see, I think correctly, Mm. that cocaine could be abused and that some people were falling prey to it, especially because many people didn't even know that they were using these pretty heavy-duty narcotics, heroin mm. and cocaine, two examples. You didn't have to label your products and say, oh, by the way, you're now taking heroin. Mm. So that was the first step was just to inform the public. You know, it's an interesting middle step. Uh, you know, we talk about decriminalization in the 21st century. In the late 19th and early 20th century, the question was, should you just let the market be aware of what was being sold to it? That was the first step. The second step was to decide, no, consumers are, I don't know, too vulnerable, hmm. so they be protected. And in stages, heroin, cocaine, cannabis, and others were made illegal between the 1890s and the early 19-teens. And it was a stimulant, right? So I'm thinking by analogy, like the social function might be a bit like... You know, I could go and sit in a Dunkin' Donuts today and see sort of a broad cross-section of society from the sort of people working on the construction site to the cops to um, people going to work a receptionist job all come in to feed a substance addiction which they require to get through various sort of difficult or long or strenuous jobs and that they've trained themselves to be dependent on. Obviously, caffeine's much less harmful, but it, to, I was trying to, like, 
picture in my head, yep. like what the social role of this drug was, and it's some, something more like that than how we think about it now, right? Yeah, and that's how the market got segmented. You're, you're absolutely right. So you, you brought up earlier, how does this drug eventually get associated with black Americans? And one of the ways it got associated with black Americans was in the late 19th century, black men in particular had to do the most arduous, physically grueling jobs. Hmm. Yeah, and just as you suggest, they found out, wow, you snort some cocaine, <laughs> you can keep at this job longer and harder. You know, it, it's a stimulant. It gives you energy affects dopamine and serotonin in the brain and man you can do things you couldn't do otherwise and that was sort of the entree point for cocaine use among the black community and, and i should say cocaine was really cheap so mm. that didn't hurt the fact then people discovered a second thing about cocaine it was fun <laughs> it provided a sense of euphoria and confidence and this also appealed to people particularly on the social margins who found themselves able to sort of walk across the public stage with greater confidence once they were snorting cocaine and didn't have to wear the mask of subservience quite the same way. Mm. So you're right, cocaine by the early 20th century increasingly became associated with black America. And there's some truth to that. Lots of folks use coke, but so, black Americans probably disproportionately did. So it becoming associated with black America, um, and again, I say associated because you could have a state of affairs, which we get to later in the story, in which there's plenty of white users, but in the sort of public's mind eye, the archetypal user is, is a, a poor black person, right? Um, but it became... So in the story you're telling, it became associated with black Americans prior to the overall push for criminalization. And the reason I ask is that there's a story that's told... Well, I'm not even saying if the story's correct or not. I'm just saying this is a way the narrative is told by the sort of Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky read of American history, which runs something like drug criminalization is a sort of tool of um, state oppression of minorities, and what tends to happen is drugs become or are simply legal to the extent that they're used by privileged white people, but to the extent that drugs become associated with minorities, they become criminalized pretty fast. So marijuana becomes associated with um, Hispanics, uh, crack cocaine becomes associated with black people, and that's the sort of causal step to, um, to criminalization. The story you're telling is somewhat different to that, though, right? Yeah, as with all things Howard Zinn, there's always a kernel of truth to it, but it's not a very compelling explanation for the totality. Again, really interesting to think about opioids overwhelmingly in the 19th and 20th century until after World War II were associated with white people. So that doesn't fit. And cocaine, while it was seen as a problem for some white supremacists, to put it bluntly, that black people use cocaine and seem to have a, a kind of social power they might not have otherwise. Hmm. Again, most cocaine users were white, hmm. and many were associated with the underworld, with criminal classes. Um, Jews in particular had a big hmm. role to play in selling cocaine. They probably hmm. dominated the illegal cocaine market in the early 20th century. So, you know, it was more, I think it was punishing the lower classes in part, but there was definitely a public health aspect to it. This is the great era of the discovery of public health as a, as a profession, as a process, as a governmental duty. And let's not kid ourselves, heroin was dangerous, cocaine 
being given to small children was not a good idea. Hmm. There, there were problems with the widespread use of narcotics in the United States. So it's not surprising that a regulatory regime with multiple motives became powerful in play. And so I don't think it's singularly about controlling particularly people of color. That's a piece of it, though. And when we get to crack cocaine, that will play an even more important role. So you would say um, the racial prejudices of the time played a role in its criminalization, but that's not the only piece and probably this, the big single variable is an overall rethinking of American ideological attitudes towards the scope and role of government and the scope and role of the market. I do think that that's fundamental. I mean, this is the same time that meat is being regulated, that mm. pharmaceuticals are being regulated, that dairy products are being regulated. So there was a massive push toward disciplinary regi regimes toward all sorts of consumer goods. Drugs, critically and importantly, become put all the way at the end of the scale. You can be punished by long criminal sentences if you sell or use those particular consumer goods. So that's another part of the story. And, you know, to be frank, has a lot to do with the religiosity of the American people, mm. pietistic Protestantism and the repression of pleasure. I mean, there are multiple factors at work in the punishment of those who seek intoxication. Um, I've also read, again, I'm just giving you narratives I've read in history books. I'm not, um, I'm letting you respond to them. I'm not saying I agree or not, because I'm not in a position where I'm really qualified to. I don't know this period of history that well. I have also read that it was, a lot of this stuff, particularly the prohibition of alcohol, was quite closely associated with the women's movement, and a big part of what women were asking for was, yes, political rights and suffrage in their own right, but they were also sick to bloody death of their husbands coming home drunk as shit or high or whatever. And that those two, which we wouldn't think about as connected at all today, um, were strongly interlinked. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's no surprise that the most effective organization to ban alcohol was called the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Hmm. So bringing together that pietistic concern with women's absolute fears that Drunken husbands were physically violent, abusive, and destroying the family wage. So again, you know, th there's no one answer to these. I, historians can sometimes fall prey to the laundry list of explanations. Hmm. It was 12 different things. So it's useful to try to think of which was the most important reason for what. Cocaine is different than alcohol. Its punishment was different than alcohol. The length in which we have punished cocaine is now a century long versus alcohol, which went through a relatively short 10-year period of prohibition. So it's interesting to think who has how much social power in a given uh, disciplinary regime. Mm. This campaign against alcohol was you know, relatively ineffective compared to the disciplinary regimes we've put against hard narcotics like heroin and cocaine. Mm. Um, so moving forward in the story then, um, could we actually, could you briefly, like, if someone, like, doesn't understand it at all, because we use the words conversationally, what is the difference between crack cocaine and cocaine? Just, like, can we just, like, pure just factual description here? So, in substance, they're the exact same thing. They're coke. Both are cocaine. Powder cocaine and rock cocaine are the same thing. It's the delivery system that's different. Crack cocaine is a value-added cocaine product, <laughs> the vaping of its time, maybe, or something like that. Basically, 
Crack cocaine is a smokable version of powder cocaine. We need not probably get into the details of how to make it. The Internet's glad to supply you with the answer to that. But by using cocaine as a smokable product, you bring it into your lungs. It gets into your bloodstream very quickly. It goes straight to your brain and produces a very intense, very quick high. So it's a more potent delivery system for the alkaloid cocaine. So we talked about race a little bit before. Um, once people started discovering how to turn cocaine into crack, or just these two different variants of the drug, mm-hmm. right, there's going to be a pretty big difference in the demographics of the markets that are created for both of those drugs, right? That's right, yeah. So could you... Yes, so go ahead. Yeah, so basically, the problem with cocaine as a useful distributed product is that it's relatively expensive and it's hard to get into the game of distributing it. Hmm. That's because cocaine's expensive, um, far more expensive you know, per pound than marijuana is, for example. Hmm. So to become a cocaine dealer, you probably needed at least a thousand bucks to get into the game. To be a cocaine consumer, generally you spend about a hundred dollars for a gram of cocaine. Hmm. I'm talking back in the 1970s when cocaine as an illegal drug becomes popular again in the United States. Would those be, sorry, just a nerd in me is going to yeah. ask this question, would those be in today's dollars or in 1970 dollars? Because that's quite different. Good point. Yeah, that's back in the day dollars. So what? Multiply that by three and a half fold to bring it up to contemporary value. So, so you know, you'd need like three or four grand to want to distribute and you'd need a few hundred bucks to even want to use. That, that's right. Back in the days, And that's just by an ounce, which is sort of the minimum a dealer could probably start, start his game with. That's a pretty high bar. Exactly. So again, if you were a a go-getter young capitalist in an inner-city marketplace with only scant dollars in your pocket, cocaine was a place you could not go to start making a living. But clever folks deduced that if you took a small amount of cocaine, maybe just that $100 gram, you could mix it with other substances, cook it down into crack, and sell vials of this drug for five bucks a vial. That's a very small amount, like a paperclip's worth of drug. But it delivered a powerful high Hmm. and a very intense high. And a certain consumer market thought that kind of oblivion was just the drug experience they were looking for. And so all you had to do is find a hundred bucks to get into the business and find consumers with five dollars in their pocket, which is a pretty broad swath of America, and you were a drug dealer. So it was a really rational market decision for people who didn't have a lot of capital to start their own deviant globalized product line. And that's what starts to happen in the 1980s in the United States and some other places as well. I'm realizing now that we've sort of, um, in telling that story, there's quite a few decades that we just sort of skipped over. So we started with the, you know, cocaine goes in your child's medicine thing, right? (laughs) And we've ended with the more familiar picture of cocaine that we have now. Is there anything we need to fill in in the intervening years, say from the end of the Second World War through to the start of the Reagan era? Because it it strikes me that there was a a certain amount that we sort of jumped over there. Is there anything that's noteworthy about public attitudes or usage of the drug in that time period? I think what's useful is to think about the ways in which the drug marketplace works like almost any other. So there's kind of a constant striving 
for market domination and consumers trying different things. So methamphetamines basically get invented in the 1930s. And people suddenly are like, oh, speed. It lasts longer and gives some of the same high for less money. And speed sort of destroys the coke, illegal coke market for hmm. about 25 years. Just seems like a superior product. Hmm. It's really not until the 1960s and early 70s that people kind of rediscover cocaine, which has advantages over meth. We don't probably need to get into the nitty gritty of that. Hmm. So this is kind of constant market substitution process. I mean, you know, drugs are just another piece of capitalism. It's just they're on the wrong side of the fence. Hmm. And you see the same kind of supply and demand and innovation and struggles for market domination. And it's only really after about a 30-year abeyance that cocaine becomes popular again and spreads and becomes an object of desire. And that's where crack suddenly becomes a cheaper market substitute for powder. And that brings us up to the 1980s. Okay, so I want to highlight one word, which is suddenly. So what dates are we talking, and how fast are we talking from, like, um, the, the this entering the marketplace to becoming, like, something that's widely used? I, I think of it almost like, you know, the advent of Apple computers or something. Mm. It, it, it's, it's not as if it took genius to invent crack cocaine, mm. so it's kind of weird that it doesn't appear earlier, and... You know, we have scattered stories of a few clever folk in inventing and reinventing crack, which, is, again, is just distilling the powder into a smokable form. But starting in the 1980s, you really had a kind of entrepreneurial class figure out how to mass market a product. Mm. And, it, you know, it's, it's not like people were waiting for crack to occur. It's sort of a says law, supply created demand. Mm. People started pushing this new product. And people said, yeah, yeah, I prefer this. This is a great idea. And that last, you know, that market domination only lasts about 15 years. And then it, crack cocaine too, sort of loses its market allure. And we can talk about why that happens later. So for something that, and we'll talk about the politics in a sec, for something that, that made as big an impression on public culture and provoked as big a political and institutional response as it did, it was fairly fleeting then. Yes. Yeah. I mean, one strong decade of crack use in concentrated forums and concentrated marketplaces. And yes, it created a moral and political panic in the United States. And when we get into this, there were good reasons for that panic. And then what probably we could deduce as racist reasons right. for that panic. They're simultaneous concerns. Right. One final question here is a genuine question. Was there any time lag between um, uh, the the um, usage and the panic? So, in other words, do, did the panic come as soon as it started establishing this market for itself, or was there um, a, a delay in sort of mainstream culture catching up to what was going on? There was a delay, but it was a short one. Okay, this is already the 1980s. We've got a pretty big pipe by this time of media distribution. And while the drug at first was mainly sold in a few poorer communities, though the usage was mainly middle class at its origin point, mm. as, as people began to see its effects both on users and on those selling the drug, which is to say the violence that ensued as people tried to maintain territorial integrity for their distributorships, mm. that's when you start to see people panic. And Again, for an American audience, this might be easier to understand. This is in the just say no era. 
There was a kind of generalized drug panic going on. Mm. So parents' concerns that little Sally and Bobby, perhaps at the age of 15, were experimenting with marijuana, quickly made its way into what if our poor suburban white kids discover crack cocaine? Mm. Smoke marijuana, that's bad enough. Cocaine in its powdered form would be scary, but rock, oh my God, it would destroy their lives. So there's a kind of racialized panic that begins in the mid-1980s in the context of a more general drug scare. Yeah, so you talked before about, like, historians or people when looking at history always kind of want to reduce it down to one narrative, but it seems like there's at least three things here which overlap and inform each other, but in principle are different. There's firstly a general fear about drugs and a sort of what-will-we-tell-the-children sort of um, type cultural panic. There's um, racial fears, because what, in the 80s, we're about a generation after the sort of civil rights movement and all sorts of... Uh, fears about integration as well as just straight racist fears, right? And then finally, there's, um, you know, a, a rising crime rate and particularly, you know, disproportionately in inner cities, a starkly rising homicide rate. And the crack epidemic kinds of, fi- almost like if you have a Venn diagram, that finds itself at the centre of those three fears. Yeah, that's nicely put. Well done. I I do think that those three things all build on each other, classic kind of synergy framework. And I would add a fourth, even though laundry lists are bad, a fourth, which is the 80s are when the modern Western economy is being born. So this Mm. is the deindustrialization, the rise of service economies, information economies, and there's a kind of economic panic Mm. as well. And that economic panic plays into this idea of who are these drug kingpins mm. kind of reducing capitalism to its most ugly face while we're all struggling to try to make sense of a new world in which we're all fearful of the sustainability of our everyday work lives? So I think that fourth piece actually kind of also undercuts the rationality available mm-hmm. for problem solving. What was a real criminal problem at the same time? So, yeah, all, all that together, you know, history's complicated. I'll go with that one. Yeah. At the same time, though, there is a thing where, because it's, you know, the, the, the violence and the sort of rise of, let's just use the word kingpin, um, are, we all, are also necessarily bound up in the racial fears. Mm-hmm. That also makes it complicated to look at and to, um, you know, if you're a middle-class white person today looking back at all this with the benefit of hindsight and knowing that the crime rate is eventually going to go down and the crack problem will eventually abate um, and we will continue to make some, albeit imperfect, progress on race, it it feels hard to necessarily... It feels harder, I should say, not impossible, to come up with a clear moral evaluation, because you can imagine one of the drug kingpins, as it were at the time, hypothetically talking here, turning back on us and saying, you know, I was just playing the same game that all of y'all were. It's not as if... um legal, rich, white industrialists didn't do messed up things and push dangerous products. 
I was just shut out of that legality because of a system that was still quite overtly racist in many ways. I don't know, there's not a question mark at the end of that, but it does, the, 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 the layers of racism on this do make it harder, I find, just for me personally, to come to an unequivocal moral condemnation. Yeah, and that's what's so intriguing, again, when you watch responses. So remember, this is the same exact era when hip-hop is mm. rising to the fore. And it's hip-hop artists who often said almost exactly what you just said. Right. We find lyric after lyric, rapper after rapper, saying that exact same thing. You shut us out of the legal marketplace. You don't allow us to get good educations. You've moved jobs outside of cities. Mm. And there's this white gold right in front of our eyes. What do you expect us to do? We're going to mine that gold and sell it. And so there's celebrations of these 25-year-olds suddenly who have $10 million stacked mm. up in their closet. And you can see the validity of that claim. And often these drug kingdoms are treated as kind of Robin Hood figures or social bandits in the Hobbesbamian definition. People from the community who made good against an illegal, an unfair system. Now, that's only half the story. And obviously a lot of black ministers and black community activists and black politicians, as well as their white counterparts, said, for God's sakes, you're destroying your own communities and neighborhoods to get rich. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing of value. Yeah. No, I'm not saying that we should take that story uncritically, but it is, it is a complicating factor, right? Yeah, absolutely, and that's what I try to get across in the book. That's why there were a lot of ambivalent feelings, especially within poor communities of color, watching this new enterprise spread, especially when a lot of the capital stayed in the neighborhood. Mm. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was seed capital for a lot of different things. You know, it reminds me in some ways of gangsters in the teens and 20s who got rich in the alcohol business. And then, you know, classic case in our country, Joe Kennedy mm. who gets involved in the alcohol business illegally and becomes the, the, the head of a dynasty of, of presidential candidates, you know. Um, and if we want to add yet one more um, sort of complicating factor to this general moral murkiness that we're describing, there's another element to that story, which is white America's fascination with quote-unquote gangster culture, if you want to call it that, in that I was talking a while back to Glenn Lowry, who's sort of a I would say now centre-right critic of social justice movements. Um, but he made the point that, you know, he looks a lot at cultural um, explanations for black disadvantage and argues that, as opposed to, say, racism, culture is at the heart of a lot of it. Um, but one of the points he, he makes, which is worth thinking about, is that a lot of the images we have about what's worst about black culture, so... Um, you know, young men in Chicago shooting each other over these $5 uh, crack vials. Um, those come from a product, a cultural product, named ma mainly rap music, that has an overwhelmingly suburban white fan base. And a lot of our images of this culture are sort of an artifice that was created to feed into a sort of white, both fear and fascination with this thing. Um, and again, there's no question mark or no pause at the end of that, but that's another morally murky factor, and although obviously um, Glenn Lowry and I have political differences, um, that's a, another story worth thinking about and taking seriously. You know, we started talking about capitalism, and 
where I stood, where you stood, where we all try to stand as we think about market forces and how they how we weather them in our own lives. And I think in any society in which market values are held up as in some ways the highest good, which I mm. think in the United States is often the case, there's a pretty thin line between those who operate legally and those who operate illegally. The boundaries are constantly shifting. And in the 1980s, when there was kind of buccaneer capitalism in the United States, it was pretty hard to say, oh, you Ivan Bosky, you Michael Milliken, who have taken hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars illegally from other people's pockets, mm. you're good guys, but you, the crack kingpin on the corner, you're a black guy, so you're a bad guy. And I think in capitalism, we see the murkiness of the values behind this exchange of goods and services for dollar bills as constantly breaking against what we think of as our moral codes. It's hard to be moral capitalist in all regards. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, look who's the president of the United States right now. Right. This is a guy who breaks the law for a living. Right. So, and don't forget, in 1986, his best-selling book was The Art of the Deal. He, his book comes out, he becomes famous in the middle of this exact same period we're talking mm. about. So, you know, he's got golden chandeliers in his apartments. How different is he than Raymond Edmund, the crack kingpin of Washington, D.C.? There's a lot of ironies, and this is the cultural contradictions of capitalism that I'm not the first one to talk about. Mm. So let's go back then and pick up another of those threads, because these are sorts of threads that we're, I'm not going to say comfortable, obviously, they're very challenging to talk about, but that flow more easily in today's discourse, to talk about the reverse Robin Hood aspect, to talk about um, a white commodification of black violence and deprivation. You know, that is something that I think the I'll just say for the contemporary left, that's a sort of form of, that's a set of narratives and a type of discourse um, that works for us. What, what we think, I think we find it harder to, to think and talk about because it meshes less easily with our current political and ideological commitments is the other story which we touched on briefly, which is overwhelmingly black political leadership at this time was not just sort of okay with the uh, panicked um, over-criminalization that's going to come, they were at the forefront of actively demanding it, and they felt that this was, or not all of them, of course, but many of them felt that this was an imperative. And that that meshes less easily with the sort of narrative that the contemporary left would want to tell about... Um, the the drug war being essentially a criminalization of blackness. Yeah, this is really, really cool to think about our current Democratic primary debate right, right now. Kamala Harris getting beat up for having been a prosecutor in California and being pretty hard on crime. There's obviously a, a debate within black America about these issues. In the 1980s, and I stress the 80s, not the 90s, among the political class, there was near consensus that something had to be done and something punitive to this crack underworld that was taking over neighborhoods. Hmm. Every progressive politician in the black world supported some sort of punitive measures, and it was led, this punitive turn, by Charlie Rangel, the congressman from Harlem. Now, I say the 80s because by the 1990s, there was a change, and by that time, 
at least some black politicians started to see that see that the cure was worse than the disease, which is to say the carceral state, the massive locking up of so many black Americans was destroying more people's lives than it was preserving or saving. Hmm. And then you get a rethinking of some of these issues. But yeah, I don't think it's fair to say that racism per se was responsible for the onset of mass incarceration. I think racism was a critical factor in the preservation and maintenance of mass incarceration. So those are two different things to think about. Could we just briefly cover um, the political response then? Because I did want to get to that and Mm -hmm. we've been working towards it for a while. So to start with, could you tell the story of the big um, federal criminalization push that happens towards the tail end of the of the Reagan presidency, which, like you said, that was led by Rangel, who I got from your book. He was the um, uh, uh, founding member of the Black Congressional Caucus, right? Um, That's right. So there's this big push, which is completely, um, which is bipartisan, right? Like, both sides are almost, well, I'll just let you tell the story. Yeah, you, you, you have it right. So by the mid-1980s, there was a generalized panic about drugs in America, and crack was at the epicenter of that panic. And the panic was not just make-believe. There was a large uptick in the use of illegal drugs in the United States, especially among young people. So there was, there was some empirical data to support the idea that drugs were becoming, if not endemic, at least widely used in the United States. And was that a good thing? Mm. It's in that context that crack is perceived as the most vile of all possible drugs. Mm. And in part because hundreds of thousands of people did fall prey to it and become, if not addicted, at least habituated to the use of crack cocaine. Mm. So it was a scary drug for a lot of folks. In that context, there was a kind of almost bidding war between Mm. Democrats and Republicans, white and black, toward punishing the distributors of dangerous drugs. And Charles Rangel, the head of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, the founding member of it, and then the head of it, the head of the Select Committee on Narcotics, pushed very hard for extremely punitive federal measures against drugs. Reagan was more than happy to oblige, and you had a coming together in Congress and in the presidency of what became obviously a hysterical response to crack cocaine by putting people in the jail for five and ten years were having just a handful of crack files in their pocket. And so. I feel we'd be remiss in telling this story if we didn't touch on the discrepancy between um, the punishment of cocaine and crack cocaine, which, as you said before, are chemically the same substance. And we get to what you call, I don't know if you coined this, but you call the 100 to 1 ratio. What is that and why did that come about? Yeah, so th- that's where the panic comes to the fore and a racialized panic. So again, cocaine is cocaine. It's chemically the same. It's made of the same stuff. But the decision was made that those who figured out how to make this low-tech value-added crack cocaine product would be found guilty of the same crime, even if they had one one-hundredth the amount of, of, of the illegal substance in their possession. Uh, with intent to distribute. This was clearly a racialized punishment. Black Americans overwhelmingly dominated the crack cocaine business. Powder cocaine was dominated by whites and Hispanics. And it's hard to see anything but a kind of racialized two-tier justice system in punishing crack dealers so much more harshly, 100 to 1 times, 
than white and Hispanic dealers. So if you want to go, well, not want to go, but um, in terms of the sort of modern story that the left tells about this era, um, you know, um, a lot of sort of, you've been pushing back on the sort of, it was all reducible to race narrative. But once you get to this point, this is about race, essentially, right? There's just, it seems hard to even imagine what else could justify that, not justify, but explain that disparity. Yeah, and again, you know, history's tough. I do stress that it was Charles Rangel who was one of the greatest supporters of this 100 to 1 ratio. Hmm. I think, I think every single member think every single member of the Congressional Black Caucus supported the 1986 Drug Act, which is what in, uh, created that 100 to 1 ratio. So racism is certainly part of it, but it's not a simple explanation. I do think there would have been far greater pushback if uh, suburban white weed dealers were being rounded up by the thousands and mm. sentenced 10 years in jail for selling uh, little Julie uh, a dime bag of marijuana. So yeah, there probably would have been a greater public outcry. But it's, it's again, people were afraid. And when people are afraid, they often do irrational and merciless things. Can we spend a minute, my favourite bit, not that it's, it was terrifying to read, of your book was you talked about the Chicago Night Courts, which I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, could you paint a picture for us of essentially an entirely new criminal justice system has been created from enforcement round up to the courts to the prosecution to new jails have to be built um could you just paint a picture of what that looks like and the increase in volume that came along with it yeah for those of us interested in mass incarceration it's really important to understand that relatively few people go to jail on federal charges Mm. so the hundred to one thing we just talked about affects tens of thousands of people Mm. State and local jails affect millions of people. Mm. And in trying to tell that story, I I found what I thought was a real exemplar, which was in Cook County. That's where Chicago is. Mm. The decision was made that there was so much crime in Chicago. So there were violent felonies and there were also lots of drug felonies. Mm. And not surprisingly, in Chicago, violent felonies took up most of people's time. Mm. Prosecutors, cops, judges, bailiffs, everybody. So much so that drug felonies were not really being pushed through the system. You often weren't jailed. You often got off. You, you weren't even arrested. It just was too much hassle. The system did not have the capacity to arrest that many people. And the decision was made in Cook County to start trying to figure out how to create a much more efficient and productive criminal justice system. And just like a factory, like a car plant or a steel plant, they decide to add a second shift. Mm. So there's violent felonies during the daytime, and then a new, brand new, entire court system is created at night, the night court system, which only handles drug felonies. Well, you increase capacity, basically you double it, guess what's going to happen? You're going to start doubling the number of people who go to prison. So it isn't like, per se, there was so much more crime in the late 80s and early 90s. It's just places like Chicago and many others got much better at punishing people for the crimes they committed and started to throw them into prisons and penitentiaries. That's what happened in Chicago. They had their own criminal system just for drug felonies. And this spread throughout the country. 
That's insane. I found that. And one just particular image I got from your book is you told a story of a young public defender who was actually reasonably successful in disputing a lot of these charges, who had five minutes to prepare to defend each of her defendants, which is just, it boggles the mind as to, like, the the volume that must have been coming through. I always think it's sort of wild. We, we talk about Fordism and post-Fordism. You know, in the olden days, there was this factory system as very regimented, and then we, the last 50 years, created a new kind of ways in which work is done. The judicial system went Fordist yeah. <laughs> during this era. You know, it's like you had a wrench and you just turned it three degrees every time over and over and over again, only it was human beings that you were processing and putting into, into the penitentiary system. I mean, so we got really Fordist about criminal justice and got really, really efficient at locking people up starting in the really starting the late 80s and forward and the sort of liberal narrative we have about this today is correct essentially right that like just an insane the, the number of people we have in state and local jails and prisons just begins to skyrocket in this period and what had been not not completely racially proportional in the past, now goes to completely unproportional. Yeah. I mean, it it just becomes way easier to lock people up, and it's way easiest to lock up people with fewer economic and political rights and privileges. Guess who gets the short end of that stick? It becomes racialized. People with privilege end up not going to prison. People who are poor or people of color, and I stress it's poor people of color, Hmm. They end up going to jail in large numbers. I mean, that's the system we're slowly, inexorably going to have to fix. Which sort of... And then the final bit of that story is the 90s, where, like, at the height of this overlapping panic about... So, you know, we change political parties of the presidency from um, Reagan to Clinton, but in many ways, um, Clinton is still buying into this sort of punitive approach, right? And at the height of this overlapping panic about drugs, about race, about violence, about what's happening with the economy, the crime rate that's been rising and rising and rising and rising levels out and then Mm. starts to fall quite dramatically, right? That's right, yes. Do you... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and what we see, unfortunately, is even as the social and economic predictors of this mass incarceration system shift, the criminal justice machinery is still revved up, it's still working, it becomes a kind of bureaucratic inertia. And we just keep locking people up. And because we're locking people up for longer and longer periods of time, the prisons just just become explosive. I mean, two million people at one point. It becomes common sense. And once things become common sense, they're politically hard to break apart. And it really takes Wow, you know, an entire generation until we can start rethinking this process. So Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, you know, all pay obeisance to this model that rises in the midst of the drug scares and and real drug problems mm. of the 80s and early 90s, with crack being the kind of poster child for the nightmare America's trying to wake from. There's um kind of like an institutional carryover, right? It's like you've built a machine and set it up to run, and unless you come and start dismantling the machine, it's going to keep doing the thing you built it to do, right? There's that. There's also kind of, um, well, let me give you a narrative and you can 
pick it apart. But there's also kind of like an ideological carryover. In, in the 90s, the left, in my home country, the UK too, actually, is sort of coming back into power after a long time having been shut out. And both with Clinton and also um, Tony Blair is someone you could mention mm-hmm. in this respect as a UK equivalent. There's sort of a feeling that the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions have, like, moved where the new normal is. We'd call it, like, the Overton window today. And we do sort of need to meet the country where it's at. And part of that, it's not uniform, it's not across the board, it's not like we're going to ideologically moderate on everything. So there are quite a lot of very progressive social policies from both of those governments. But one of the big ways we're going to meet sort of middle America, as it were, is we're going to meet them on crime. And we're going to meet them on crime in a way that recognises and dignifies and to some extent plays into fears about race and about class that go with those fears about crime, or like I said of the Venn diagram, overlap with it. And there's sort of this ideological inertia of the, the there's um, this sort of third way ideological project. Um, Tony Blair put it very overtly. He said, we are never going to be flanked from the right on crime. To the extent that the Tories are proposing some draconian thing, we'll just pitch up, you know, d- another 20% down the road further from them. We'll never be flanked on it. And Bill Clinton did something similar. Um, and... That created an ideological inertia of its own in that nothing succeeds like success. And, you know, they have, the left has a very complicated relationship now, both with the Clintons and the Blairs. But at the time, they were ferociously successful politicians. And if the left is deciding to, like, position itself in that space ideologically, where's the place for reform going to come from? It's not going to come from the right. They're suddenly not going to become, you know, prison rights defenders or something like that. So there's just this carryover that takes us another decade or two down the line, you know? It's absolutely the case. And Bill Clinton, as you say, just like Tony Blair, they stared the abyss in the eye and fell into the abyss. They knew exactly what they were doing. They felt bad. At least Bill Clinton felt bad about what he was doing. We know that now. He thought it was the only way he could win. And you know, it's a classic profile curse. Uh, historians now look back at Franklin Roosevelt and say Franklin Roosevelt basically looked at racism and he blanked. He refused to confront racism in the United States in the 1930s. He said, I have other things I have to do first. Mm. I think Bill Clinton in the 1990s did the exact same thing. Gosh, I wish I could confront the racism that undergirds this war on drugs and the carceral state, but I have so many other important things I have to do, so I I can't afford it. Well, you know, those are the decisions politicians make, and it's a calculation. We do have to face up to who always suffers when those acts of political cowardice occur, and it tends in the United States to be black Americans. I don't think that's going to make it easy for Joe Biden, for example, to face up to the left in his own party. It's intriguing, though, to watch Joe Biden, who supported all of this criminalization, still gaining a lot of support in the black community. So people can forgive. They can uh, try to move past it. But I don't think we should ever forget that political cowardice is a crime perhaps too high to pay in the lives of so many people. 
And in a similar vein, Hillary Clinton. So this is where, like, I just like talking about this stuff because it's not, there's, it's, it doesn't, as we've been, if there's one theme through this conversation, it doesn't reduce to one narrative. Because Hillary Clinton won the 2016 primary against a sort of more liberal, socialist, a more left-wing challenger because of the residual affection that many older black voters had for her husband. And if Joe Biden becomes our nominee this time round, he will likely have done it thanks to the support of older black voters. And I think there can be a nasty sort of um, paternalistic, patronising attitude on the part of white liberals who sort of say, well, older black voters don't know enough, or they're not tuned in, or they're... To, to come up with some quite demeaning explanation of that support, rather than to address it on its own terms, and say, these are, these are grown-up human beings who are expressing their political preferences, and they, they have every much as validity and right to as you do, you know? I, I think one of the things we've started to learn in the United States, looking back now decades, is that black voters tend to be the most pragmatic voters of all. Hmm. They have far more at stake. They do a very rational calculation quite often. And a guy like Joe Biden has been very good to black Americans on most issues. Mm. And they understand that. And they know that. And they are confident that he will do right by them in balance. Mm. <laughs> and that's a pragmatic approach to politics that, you know, maybe is how you win elections and get policies made. It's easy to blast political cowardice. I just did it and I'd do it again. Yeah. But some people have to say, well, you know. It's a complicated game out there, and people make decisions, and in the final analysis, this guy's okay. So we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's an interesting political character in his own right. Yeah, I mean, let's... I don't want to do the 2020, because that'll be like another <laughs> big thing just there. I'll add right. one final thing. I feel like as soon as this conversation has been, as soon as we, we have a coherent story, we one of us just complicates it again. But there's another narrative you could tell about the Clinton years, that this is a resounding triumph for black America. Like the average black income, something like doubles over that period of, let's just say, the, the 90s. Um, the violent crime rate, which has, like, you know, mostly been affecting young, poor black men. Um, some of these, like, incredible homicide rates that you see in certain inner cities start falling, and falling quite radically. And a figure that always amazes me is um, a, a measure I often use as, like, latent or, like, subtle racism in society, is if you ask people, would you be okay with a close relative, assuming this is we're asking white people, would you be okay with a close relative marrying someone who was black? And even if people are, like, you know, not wearing a hood or overtly bigoted, I think that question does give you a sort of a measure of the pulse of where what white America is at with these things. When Bill Clinton becomes president, two-thirds of white Americans say they would be uncomfortable with that. By the time he leaves office, it's quote-unquote only, but it's only a third. Now, that number had been ticking down for a long time, but it suddenly plummets in the 90s. And it's not unique. Many other aspects of, like, would you want to live in a racially integrated neighbourhood, um, attitudes about, you know, all sorts of socially conservative attitudes about race, or indeed racist attitudes about race, really markedly decline in that period. And it's never been even remotely clear to me why. 
But there, there's another narrative, just to completely contradict myself, which is the 90s saw some astounding progress, both on sort of income and safety and attitudes for a lot of black American communities. And that also has to be part of the story. Yeah, I'll do this real quick. I mean, one of the things that too many of us who comment on black America do is we treat it as if it's this one thing. Yes, yeah, so really, agree. Sorry, go ahead. What you really see starting in the late 1960s is a massive segmentation of black America. There is the largest increase in the number of black middle class people in the United States that we've ever seen between 1970 and 2008. Hmm. There's a very successful black America that takes full advantage of legal equality. Hmm. There's also a black America that's unable to take advantage of legal equality, who are too poorly skilled, who don't have the right educations or backgrounds, who live in inner cities and don't have access to jobs. That black America does poorly. That's the crack America I write of. And it's no surprise that many middle class black Americans are the ones who are for punishing mm. those other black Americans who are destroying communities and neighborhoods in which they sometimes still live. So there's greater economic inequality in black America than there is in white America during this period we're talking about. Mm. And I think that's some of what you're start, starting to think and talk about here. There's real racial progress in the United States, but it's uneven racial mm. progress. And that's the curse we're still living with. So the book is Crack, Rock, Cocaine, Street Capitalism, and the Decade of Greed, and that's just been published with Cambridge University Press. Um, I'm guessing we can get this on Amazon and find booksellers everywhere, right? Correct, and it's also available at the end of the month in an audiobook. Ah, there we go. So for people who'll be listening to this, unlike probably... Um, will be disproportionately into consuming material through uh, that mechanism. There's that as well. Terrific. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, Professor. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.